Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Lineup with Dave Prodan. That's me. I'm Dave Prodan. This isn't exactly the WSL's first podcast. It's it's not really mine either. Um, but this is the first one out of this new era, and I'm I'm really glad we're doing them. Personally, I'm a big fan of the medium, mostly because you know long form conversation really gives everyone the opportunity to have what resembles a more honest discussion. Which you know, ideally, and and counter to soundbite, social media, outrage culture, better dimensionalizes the people you listen to, and and within that, potentially subverts stereotypes in a really helpful way. And, and it's really important to me to stress that there are a lot of really good surfing podcasts already out there, and they're definitely worth a listen. There's Surf Splendor with David Scales. There's The Boardroom Show with Scott Bass. Ain't It Swell with Vaughn Blakey and Jed Smith. There's The Grit with Chad Smith. There's The Ockcast with Mark Ocalupo. There's Monday Mass with Chris Cote and Todd Richards. There's Lift with Cowbell Warren and Jimmy Miles. Surf Simply with Harry Knight and Asher King and just a lot of others. So yeah, I, I don't think we should be hanging on this quarter without acknowledging the other ones that have been here for a long time and, and in years and some case because these are a lot of hard work um, and a lot of these have already had me on their shows as guests in the past hopefully they can come on this one in the future um, so please check those out if you get a chance and the big reason we're doing this is because we already have these conversations every day we have them in the parking lot we have them in the bar the airport lounge coffee shop the break room in the lineup I've been having them feels like my whole life everyone has and um, you know some of mine I'm very thankful were not recorded and we'll never see the light of day but most of them could have been pretty entertaining and interesting so yeah that's that's why we're doing the lineup with Dave Prodan for legal purposes. And, and that's why it exists. So I hope you enjoy it very much. And giving everyone the best chance to enjoy it out the gates, I'm genuinely privileged to bring you this conversation with the Prime, the 1976 world champion. He's a Hollywood stuntman, surf media publisher, marketing guru, international coach. He's a person who's continued to break new ground, reinvent himself, and drive surf culture in a fashion that has never been and likely will never be replicated. So please enjoy the lineup's conversation with Peter P.T. Townend. The good old clap, take one. That's right. How many of you knew what you wanted to be when you were seven years old? I did. I wanted to be a world champion. Hey, is there honesty involved in this podcast? Can we be honest? You can shut your fucking lips. And then I'll just say, put them up once. Let's go. He's like, you look too pretty on the wave. Get ugly. We can talk about DMT if you want. It's up here, boxing. So, PT, you, you've just flown in from China. I, I hope they fly you in the pointy end of the plane. Well, yesterday I was fortunate. Uh, I had got delayed in Hangzhou, which is the city that where we have the Silver Dragon, and a uh, flight delay. And so I missed the connecting American Airlines flight and had to stay in this really nice airport Hilton. It's one of the best Hiltons I've ever stayed in. And then when I got to the airport the next day, they were nice to me and I got upgraded to the business class. So I had a sleeper seat for six hours. <laughs> that is awesome. Now, what, now explain for everyone, what are you doing in China? How often are you going out there? 
Well, I've been going to China for quite some time on this event called the Silver Dragon, which is the battle at Silver Dragon. And uh, it's an international event where nine teams come from all over the world. Uh, we do a television documentary of the event, but really the impetus of the event is the China audience itself. It's on live television and uh, over 20 million people are watching us on the river thinking we're going to die. It's not, it's not because there's an interest in surfing. It's because uh, through the centuries, many people get washed off the riverbank and die because most Chinese people can't swim. And so they think we're crazy that we're out there on the river trying to surf on it. And, uh, and as a result, a whole bunch of people are watching us surf and and, uh, and it is extremely dangerous. I mean, you're talking about eight to 10 foot waves coming down a river and through the centuries, you know, there's a lot of obstacles left over from old piers and dismantled stuff. And, and so we actually have a very high safety protocol, particularly because it's all under government supervision and they really pay attention to that. Uh, so we actually have what we call wranglers on the, on the shoreline that keep the competitors off 100 meters off the shoreline just for their own safety. Because if we don't, the sandbars get shallow over near the the edge and the guys want to go over there and get barreled but we have to keep them out of a certain range uh but there's still incredible waves even with with having to do that and it's a river bore that comes down the yeah and this year the conditions were extremely good because the you know it's all a result of the sun and the moon and at this time of year the sun and the moon come closest together this year combined with the tides it comes up what's called the chontong river where if you see shanghai on a map you'll see there's a big opening to the east china seas and so that river bore comes down there and and, uh, and it produces this incredible wave that uh, we have a span of five miles and the swell moves down. And as it's moving through the river, it changes as the sandbars changes. So each team is on a jet ski and it's kind of like hunting or scouting, like playing a round of golf. We have a practice day. So the guys have a map of the river. They try to figure out where the good waves are. There's rights and lefts and down the middle peak. And, and, uh, and we have a priority system just like we do with the WSL. And a team will hold priority and they'll know that big rights come going to be after the next bridge because there's actually uh, seven bridges. We start at bridge nine and after each bridge, the wave will disappear and it'll just be a swell moving. It comes out the other side and then it stands up again when it hits the next sandbars. That is unreal. How do you judge something like that? The field is, must <laughs> From be a miles boat. long, no, no, right? No. Yeah. Well, well, think of, think of Chopu, Chopu Mobile. Everyone's in boats backing up from the swell. And uh, I was in the boat on uh, practice day because I always, as the event director, want to go get a feel for what's going on with the teams and all that. And this year we dry docked the boat and got run over by the wave and that was pretty serious. So I had an LA Times cameraman on board my boat with a $100,000 camera that nearly got upended and into the water. I don't know why people think it's dangerous. <laughs> it's pretty freaking dangerous, let me tell you. Well, so that's what you do now. Are you still involved with the China Olympic team? And no, uh, I did the two years from 2017 and 18 where I was the Chinese Olympic coach, uh, the first appointed one. And uh, their expectations, you know, because of Olympic power, China is, you know. Sure, like yeah, the, of course. One of the most powerful Olympic nations, you know, you'd probably say, you know, China and the US and Russia, you know, it's probably the Germans are not far behind, but uh, they think they can get there faster than than than, than it's going to take. And they, the real problem is China does not have a beach culture like inherent like we've all. They have a lot of beaches, yeah, incredible shoreline of beaches, but very small percentage of the population can actually swim. Right. So you don't have a beach culture where people go to the beach. Yeah. You know, they go to the beach in civilian clothes, walk along the beach, but they don't go in the water. And so Chinese surfing or surfers have really only existed for a decade. Yeah. You know, whereas 
how we grew up, we're talking about 100 years, you know, like of surfing culture. And they want to hear what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. And their expectations about thinking they could qualify for Tokyo were unrealistic. And uh, I I just, I, I don't coach that way. I mean, I've coached America to win gold medals. (laughs) <laughs> and and I understand what it takes and you're not going to tell me how to coach and if you and that's like any professional sport you know if the Lakers don't like that coach then they get rid of that coach and they hire somebody else well I don't have a problem with if you don't like my philosophy and then I'll just move on and but I'm still integrally involved in the of course the Silver Dragon which is a, a great event and for those who have not been to China China is a lot more what would I say developed than most people think Sure. Their, their social yeah. structure now with 300 million middle class, they got the population of the entire United States in the middle class now with money. And it's changed dramatically. I mean, I was just there and listening uh, to a report from Mercedes Benz. Mercedes Benz now, it's cars that get built in the world. 25% of them get sold in China now. It's the biggest car economy in the world. Well, I, yeah, I mean, perception's a big one. I, I, I mean, when I went to Singapore a few years ago, I think my only reference point was like Pirates of the Caribbean. So, you know, as a self-professed, uncultured swine, it's like, it's embarrassing. We have to check our bias all the time. And the Chinese are hardly the only people that only want to hear what they want to hear, not what they need to hear, right? Well, and they're just, you know, it's a communist country and and, uh, and stuff just gets done. You know, stuff doesn't have to go through Congress and a million Democrats and Republicans fight over who's going to pay for it. And stuff just gets done. Sure. <laughs> Well, it's interesting what you say about beach culture, too, because there is this large sort of intangible force, whether it's a family or a community or, as you said, decades of ingrained surf culture that matters. You know, it's not just athleticism. It's it's like a comfort in the ocean and a generational comfort in the ocean. And, and we were talking about this the other day as it pertained to John John Florence and surfing pipe. And, and sort of the comparison was, you know, academics think if you ever want to be truly fluent in a language, you have to start learning it when your brain's developing. So like four to six. And, and we were saying, well, it's probably like someone like John and surfing pipe, you know, like he probably just sees things that if the first time you surf pipes at 18, like it doesn't matter how many hours you spend out there, your brain just will never become fluid in it as his has. Well, and I think the other part of it is also generational mm. is that you're only in your first generation of Chinese surfers. Right. The kids of those surfers will be the ones that will have an impact and influence. And I think, you know, surfing in the Tokyo Olympics, even though China won't qualify, will be a stimulus because there's a really head-to-head competition between Japan and China through history, Mm. you know, through the wars, through the occupation. And so there's this real rivalry. And and I think there'll be a stimulus uh, uh, to Chinese youth to want to go to the beach, want to escape. There's one little culture going on on Hainan Island that's out in this place called Rayu Bay. Yep. That reminds me of the 60s when I grew up mm. in the same way it was in California and, and Australia is the kids, well, they're not kids. Most of them now are in their 20-something, but they've split the mainland and moved to the island so they can be lifestyle. And they figured out somehow to make some money to be there and surf. And then at night, they're in the club ha- having some drinks and you know trying to pick up on the girls. And, and that's how it was 50 years ago for us. So th- that little thing is bubbling. 
you know? Well, I was going to say that that really sounds like it parallels the era in which you came up on the Gold Coast. You know, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, it's exactly like that. I mean, we in the, you know, late 60s and then uh, into the 70s, I mean, there was this culture and many of the people that had moved to Coolangatta, you know, came from Sydney or they came from the other city to escape the city and get away to to the warm water and the perfect point waves and at night time we'd be at the place called the patch you know getting drunk and picking up on the sheila so that that was the deal <laughs> <laughs> where is the patch in relation to day give me some geography boy. so you know where commune is right behind i've never it's heard cr- of it it's commune right there across from the tweed Ed's cool and get a surf club straight across from that was the patch must be like a pet cemetery thing there must just be like <laughs> it was in the the old what was called the queensland hotel and it was the the nighttime spot so generational surfers who were some of the surfers that when you were picking it up that were on the gold coast that you looked up to well the generation that came before us uh you know was nat young midget farrelly but for us in queensland was a guy called peter druin Mm. and uh and he was the first real queensland superstar but of course we were influenced by you know nat and midget those guys were already internationally known and and uh and you know both of them you know had one uh, ISA World Championships 64 and 66 and so th- those were the first generation if you want to look at it from a competitive point of view of competitive surfers and then of course in our hometown Phyllis O'Donnell who was the first ISA Women's World Champ yep. uh, and so we had a world champ in our hometown and in, in, in those days though you know <laughs> the women really weren't that well thought of like they are today I mean the girls today I mean it's incredible what the level they've reached and, and, uh, and you know and from it used to be people would leave the beach when the girls came on. Not anymore. Right. And Phyllis is from Kingscliff, where Steph's from. Right. And and of course they would surf uh, Gatta points all the time because Kingscliff, while it has the beach and everything, it doesn't have the classic points set up. There's a couple of good beach breaks out there, and a little further down the coast, a place called Cabarita Bogengar. Hmm. That's a pretty nice point further down. But they would always want to come in and surf. In those days, before it was the Superbank, you had Snapper Rocks, Rainbow Bay, Greenmount Point, and Cura. Yeah. And then of course you know through the sand and dredging it all turned into the one thing known today as the superbank when you say um, influenced in the 50s 60s 70s it's not like today obviously because if you're influenced you're seeing a photo on social media or a web clip or something but you said you're influenced by nat young and midget fairly and i'm curious what do you mean like like how 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 did you come across them well Surf magazines, <laughs> a thing of the past. Wait, e- <laughs> explain. I don't understand. <laughs> Print surf magazines. You'd wait for the new issue of Surfing World to come out, and uh, you'd see that, and you'd see a picture of Nat and uh, or a picture of Midget. You'd tear it out and stick it on the wall. And then surf movies, another another forgotten art. You know, a surf movie would come along, and uh, particularly for our era, the the 1968 ISA World Titles were held in Puerto Rico, and our team was incredible. We had Nat and Midget and Wayne. Lintz and Russell Hughes and Peter Druin um, I mean our Keith Paul our team was amazing and uh, we didn't win Midget got second Fred Emmings won but Nat was in the final and Russell Hughes was in the final so three of the six guys in the finals were Aussies that was a huge influence on the next generation which you know was the Cooley kids Michael Peterson myself and Rabbit and then from Sydney Mark Warren and Ian Cairns uh, you know from West Australia and Mark Richards was just coming along behind in that pack at the same time and 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 that was that that whole busting down the door generation of Australia, and of course, you know, you, you had the Thompsons, Sean and Michael, 
came from South Africa, but that was that generation that came after, you know, Nat and Midget and over here, you know, that was Corky Carroll and the Weaver in California. And, uh, but that 68 ISA world contest is when I really think everything changed because it was the end of the longboard thing. Mm. was the experimentation of the shortboard was coming and mm. everyone had a different version of that. You know, there was Fred and the, the Hawaiians were kind of still on a hybrid longboard. Yep. Uh, Nat and Wayne were on, you know, like double-ended stubbies. And, the, and then you had guys like Reno Abalera and the Weaver on these like stilettos. They were like freaking darts you'd throw at the wall. And everyone had a different version of what was going on. Nothing like what you see today. I mean, you look at all the boards today and the general person can't tell the difference. You, I think that's a good point. I mean, it's, you were you have been at the vanguard of really seismic design evolutions and equipment. And today there's, there are those, but they're more tremors. I mean, at that time you're talking about radical change in length and, and fin setup, et cetera. Right? And shape and width. And, and you don't physically see that. I mean, there was the window of time Time from uh, single fin to multi fin. We had the Bonza come through. Then the twin fin came through again for the second time with MR leading the charge. And then, of course, you know, Simon developing the thruster changed everything in the early 80s. And we're still much there in the same way Simon made it back then. Only now the the boards boards used to be prized back then if you had a good one you just saved that thing fixed every ding now they're like kleenex you know a guy, a guy gets you know six six twos and puts them in his board bag and you know he gets a ding in one and he pulls out another one like it's another kleenex <laughs> I, I i remember um a few years ago and i won't name this surfer on the podcast but when we get him on i'm gonna bring it up i had to go interview him in his hotel room at rainbow bay and he was a rookie a, a very uh hyped rookie and he had a hundred and ten boards <laughs> for one event <laughs> and i was just went i don't i mean but i do you do you I want to go back a little bit do you remember your very first surfboard Absolutely. What was it? Eight foot six Joe Larkin. It had a, a royal blue bottom with a white top, uh, pigment in those days with a stage three George Greeno fin. And uh, it was a Christmas present from my parents, from Joe Larkin, because my dad knew Joe Larkin. And it was my mother's idea that she didn't run it by me until I went around to pick it up. Is uh, My uncle Tom Beetson was a sign writer in those days. You know, you didn't, sign writers went around, painted the signs on the buildings and stuff. And he had painted my name on the deck of the board. If only I'd still have that board, that board might actually be worth something, right? But, but <laughs> oh, at that sure. time, it was kind of embarrassing when you were just beginning to have your name painted on your board. Maybe but he that, knew something mom's, you did mom's, at the time. Mum's reasoning was that no one could steal it. <laughs> that was the reasoning. I don't know. I don't know if that was true for the Coolangatta area then, <laughs> nor now. Um, how old were you when you got your first board? I was just turning fifteen, so uh, it was the Christmas of '66. So two years before the uh, the ISA champs that we were talking about. Two years, yeah. And, and the other part of that Nat Midget thing is they they were already prominent in the newspapers too. They had Sunday columns in the Sunday paper and opposing newspapers: the Midget Farrelly column and the Nat Young column. And I started a scrapbook, which I still have to this day, where I cut them out every weekend and put them in the scrapbook. And uh, that became the the forerunner of what is known today as the PT collection. And, and I still have those those scrapbooks from the 60s. You know, you, you're, well, and we'll get to it, obviously, um, but you, just in reflection, um, having had such an international career in so many places, it always strikes me how interesting different cultures have accepted surfing and professional surfing and competitive surfing and surfing as a sport versus a lifestyle in my short career uh, relative to yours. In Australia, it 
it feels like it mainstreamed very quickly and competitive surfing was accepted very quickly as sort of as sort of the expression of surfing would you agree disagree what was it like well what happened here in california in 72 they had the last of the old school isa world contest the one in san diego which i got in the final i got i got third but the final was jimmy Blears. he won from hawaii mm. nuiva was second that was the one where they had stole his fish board and stuck the saber through it and hung it from the pier and that was kind of symbolized what i call the dark decade competitive surfing went underground in america mm. but in australia it blossomed because the very next year bells became a pro contest Right. And that was the first one that declared itself as a professional contest. And quickly followed by that was the 2SM Coca-Cola S Sydney contest, which was on TV. And we, we, us Aussies had a vision because at that time uh, were the glory days of Australian tennis, which had gone from amateur to professional with Rod Laver and Newcomb and Emerson. They all told Wimbledon to stick it and we, we're going to go pro and barnstorm. And that's what they did. And we were all going, well, why can't we do that with surfing? And we had that in our mind. And so we formed the APSA, the Australian Professional Surface Association, before Fred ever formed the IPS. And we already had developed ratings in Australia before any of that other stuff had happened. And it was in the end that Fred, after we showed Randy what we were doing in South Africa in 76, Fred embraced our rating system. And that became the beginnings of the IPS and the rating system as we kind of know it today. That's how it really came about. And, um, and we just, because of what was happening with the tennis thing, and uh, particularly myself and Ian Cairns, we were real students of Formula One Grand Prix motor racing, even though we didn't drive cars yeah. like that. But, but we saw that as a global sport, that at that time, Formula One was already huge. And we had a couple of great yeah. Australians, Jack Brabham and that David Hill, that were, were uh, you know, prominent Formula One drivers. And it was a little bit of that and a little bit of tennis. And we went, why can't surfers be, have that same sort of world tour? And, and that, that was our thinking. When did you personally realize that you were pretty good at it? <laughs> uh, uh, so I'll tell a little personal story. So in the late 60s, uh, you know, now I'd had a couple of surfboards and, and the surfboards had gone from eight, six, I was down to like six feet, you know, and did I'm you still at, write your name on the deck? No, or? no, I wasn't <laughs> writing my name on the deck anymore. But th th this one morning at breakfast, you know, I, I grew up in a big family, six kids and I'm the oldest and you ate breakfast together every morning with mum serving breakfast. And I, it was just a conversation. I said, mum, I'm getting a new board what color should I get it? And my mother said to me, son, you should get the next one hot pink, which was a pretty brave thing to do in the, in those days. And I went, you know, I'm a pretty confident, I was, you can tell I've always been kind of confident kid. So I got the next one hot pink and, uh, and I came second in Queensland, which is like coming second in, in California in the state championships and made the, uh, Queensland national team and uh the queensland team for the national championships and uh and i did well in that i i think i finished seventh and got in one of the finals because they used to have multiple rounds and i went wow this pink thing's kind of working and so from then on i met i made the next seven queensland teams and came second <laughs> i came second in five australian championships never won one and it all to different people and uh and that's when i started to realize you know like I'm pretty good at this. And when we actually came on that Australian team to San Diego in 72, I was number one seed because I had got second both years where the other guys had gone up and around. And, uh, and as a result, I ended up as the highest placed Australian. And as a result of that result, I went to 
North Shore for the first time. And I was invited, thanks to George Downing, into the Duke, which at that time was the premier event because it was only 24 invitations voted on by the peer group to get in for surfing at sunset, which I'd never surfed. And I went out and got fourth. I went, I got in the final. And uh, that was the bini- really the beginning of my international career. You know, from then on, one of the things I'm most proud of is for a Howley, I have the most invitations ever to the Duke in history. I was in 11 straight Dukes from 72 to 82. That is pretty impressive. The the pink thing's interesting. You ever talked to Julian about that? <laughs> well, you know, he's doing it though because of breast cancer because his yeah, mother survived sure. breast cancer. But I, I'm stoked that I wish I had a trademark that I might have made some money. I was right? about to say... <laughs> If he does if he does well in the next event on the pink board, we need to have a conversation. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. I mean, so it's interesting. Was and I guess you know you realizing that you're really really good at this and and at this era, they're not really being a career pathway or one that had any longevity to offer anyone. And it's interesting that it was happening in different sports as well, as you said, the Labor Cup and um, F1. And and it was really, you were part of a group of people that formed the sport and profession of surfing uh, largely as a survival tool. Well, and there was another little piece of all of that too. 50% of the guys that were going around the world surfing in competition, we were shaping our own boards. We were actually, our income was not coming from prize money or sponsorship, didn't exist. And so we were all shaping our own boards and and shaping boards to make a living at the same time. Like I was shaping in Queensland and then I had a contract with Gordon and Smith Australia where I'd go to Sydney and live down there for a while and shape boards. And and so there was that part of it going on too, uh, that that that's how we made money. And, And I was also smart enough to realize uh even though i was not schooled as a journalist i became a upi journalist for murdoch and uh you know that was supplementing my income too i had a column in australia's biggest syndicated paper and it was peter townend surfing today and uh and and came out in the in the daily mirror in sydney twice a week and you know i was making a couple of hundred bucks a month and that was that was good money in those days you're talking a long time ago that's awesome money i i love that most everyone had to shape their own boards. I think we should have an event where the surfers on tour shape their own boards now. <laughs> who was who the best shaper out of your peer group? Who was the best shaper? Well, the guy that, that had the most like forward thinking was Michael Peterson. He was already riding, you know, ultra... Originally, the first ones you ever saw were the morning, morning of the Earth with the big fin and double enders. But he quickly transitioned into narrower, a lot of rocker, a lot of V, and we weren't on it, and he was. And that was one of the reasons at that time he was so dominant because he could surf faster than we could. He could do stronger maneuvers than we could. And then from a point of view of, of technique and, and moving it forward, you know, MR was a student you know, of Ben Iper and Brewer and Reno. And uh, he developed into a really excellent designer and shaper. And of course, was a big cont- contribution to why he won four world titles because his equipment was so fine-tuned 
to him. <laughs> he knew what he wanted and what he ride, what he wanted to ride to win. And that was a little bit like what Michael Peterson was before that. What was, I mean, Michael Peterson is an iconic figure in surfing lore. What was your friendship with him like? We grew up a block apart. We started off, uh, we started off being in Cura Surf Riders together. And actually, even before that, we were in the clubbies, in the, in the, the lifeguards. Uh, when we were still in, in high school at Tweed Eds and Coolangatta, then we were in the Board Riders Club, the Cura Board Riders Club. And he was a year older. So at first, we weren't really head to head, but we were making surfboards under our parents' house in the cut down era where we took longboards and stripped the glass off, turned them around backwards so the rocker was in the right end. And uh, he would shape them. And then his brother, Tommy, glass them and i'm the only one that had a sander i had a little black and decker sander so it was my job to sand them over under my parents house and uh so we grew up in the same neighborhood and uh and then later in that time we became rivals i came second to him in the australian championships in 72 uh and i came second to him again in 74 and in the meantime he he didn't really he had some results in Hawaii, but not like I did. I, I was getting in the finals all the time. And we were pretty strong, bitter rivals there for a little bit. And then I kind of wasn't around anymore. I'd gone to Sydney to work for Jordan and Smith. And then the, the rivalry became between him and Rabbit. Right. Rabbit was the upstart coming up and it was Michael and Rabbit. And I was kind of more now international, you know, I was always going to Hawaii and I was getting in the finals and the contest there and doing well. And, um, and then... As time went by and, and he had his issues, you know, with, with uh, you know, with the drugs that came into it and that and the schizophrenia, that's really what was the issue was the schizophrenia and the drugs were actually stabilizing the schizophrenia at that time. They didn't even know what that was. Sure. But but that's the really facts of it is that the drugs were stabilizing the, the schizophrenia. And, you know, when he won the inaugural stubbies, the first man on man contest in professional surfing, which was his swan song, that was after that he was never that competitive ever again. And we became good mates in that end of era because he suddenly respected what I was doing in Hawaii and he saw that you know I had I had made that legendary Smirnoff in 74 final at 30 foot plus Waimea and uh, none of the Aussies were in that final except me and and that changed people's perception of me for sure and and and, and then and then I had one other crazy thing that happened that changed the whole thing is because so I get announced by Fred to be the first IPS world champ. And then I quit the tour and everyone said, you can't quit the tour. You're the world champ. You got to defend. I go, no, I'm going to Hollywood to hang out with Jan Michael Vincent and do big Wednesday. <laughs> and so that next year, straight after we did the stubbies and I got in the quarterfinals, I left and went to Hollywood and, and we made the movie big Wednesday, which from fame and, and, and fortune for me probably made me larger than life than most of my peer group of the time. And even to this day, I mean, I still do so much like Big Wednesday stuff as Jack Barlow, you know? Well, I love that you glazed over the fact that you are what we consider the very first world champion. <laughs> that, was, that was barely a footnote in that story. You know what stokes me so much today? And, and other people just don't realize it, but now the new logo, it has 1976. And every time I see that, I go, that's me. <laughs> me, me too. So, but but I, I do want to get into that story a little bit because I talked to Fred on the phone the other day and we were going back and forth. And, and uh, I think I think his, his son was coming to this event and he was, um, we we're getting him set up. And he said, Oh, he goes, um, Well, when you come to Hawaii this winter, um, I want to take you, take you out to lunch at the Outrigger Canoe Club. And I'm like, I, Every time he says that to me, I think of 
the trophy story with you? Well, you know, we went back, uh, I'm going to say five years ago, six years ago, and the trophy's still there. <laughs> we we, we, we you, took the photo again. But you have to break the story down for us, right? So it's the end of the season. Fred, Randy adds up the ratings. Yep. Uh, and I'm number one. And so, and so he invites, Fred invites us to outrig a new club for lunch because he wants to get a press photo. And uh, so we drive in and, uh, and Fred doesn't have a trophy to give the world champ. So he goes <laughs> over to the cabinet because he's a member of the Outrigger Canoe Club. He gets the key you know, from the caretaker and opens up and there's this one trophy and that's the one that's in the photo. And it had an engraving on it, an inscription. So he just turned it around backwards <laughs> and they took the photo. And that photo the next day was in the Honolulu Advertiser. And that's the birth of pro surfing. That, I mean, that, that's it right there. That photo is the birth of pro surfing as we know it today. With a uh, appropriated trophy from the cabinet of the Outrigger <laughs> Canoe Club. And the trophy's still there. That's good. I'm glad it's still there. I, I do think an awesome story would be to um, like hunt down all the world title trophies and tell those stories just from a hardware perspective because we're talking 43 years. I have uh, Joel Parkinson's 2012 trophy at my house because the original broke ah. at the press conference. And... He didn't see that it broke. And, you know, he had obviously been celebrated as a title contender for years and years and years and probably should have won a few times and things kept happening. And I didn't know if he was superstitious or not, but we did the press conference with Kelly, Mick and Joel and they all got up there and they took a photo with the trophy and then Kelly did an individual, then Mick did an individual, then Joel did one. And when Joel put it down, the handle snapped off and he didn't see it. <laughs> and I went, oh my God, like if he sees that and it's a bad omen. I, so I just grabbed the trophy and took it away. And then we took it back to uh, our house and Al Hunt, Renato Hickler looking at it. And I'm like, I don't know. And they dismantled it. I don't know why, because it was the handles that was a problem. And then when I got back from surfing, they're like, well, it's, we can't fix it. We're just going to borrow one that Randy's got. And I said, well, what are you going to do with the trophy? And they said, oh, I'll probably just throw it out. I'm like, I'll take it. And so I put it in my bag. Exactly. And then when Al Hunt got back from Ted's Bakery and he found out I'd taken the trophy, he was pissed. Al <laughs> wanted good, that trophy. good momentum to have. That's good. And then, of course, you know, like years later on at, uh, at the ASP banquet, in those days, it was the ASP banquet. I think it was Slater was winning his seventh. And when he got up on stage, he was the one that announced. He goes, it's come to my attention that the first world champ, Peter Townend, never got a trophy. And that was that whole thing then. And, and, and they came to me and, and, uh, and I went, well, it's not fair. I said, the first four of us never got a trophy. I go, there's one big perpetual trophy that MR has us in his house in Australia that Fred gave to him with all our names on, but none of us got trophies. And so they did that whole thing the next year where we all got new trophies. That was the first banquet I went to when yeah. I started. That would have been 07. Yeah, it was, was Slater. I think it was his seventh world title. Sounds right. Yeah. That sounds right. I, I think it's fascinating that, you know, we've, we've talked about it a little bit, but when you were a young professional, professional surfer you had to really be diverse you had to be able to shape you taught yourself how to write you had to be a businessman and as you said the year after you won the world title like you left for hollywood and you continued to diversify your career after winning the world title like in a lot of ways because you were still very young yeah well one of the things that mattered most in those days was whatever income you were gonna earn was because of how famous you got so you had to make sure that you were famous. <laughs> and so you had to make sure that you were seen and you got in the magazines. And I mean, it, it doesn't happen like that these days. But, you know, the, the, the stories about backdoor and off the wall where as soon as we saw the cameras come out, we all paddled out. These days, that's not what 
stokes those guys to go out. The only reason they go out right now is because the Pipe Masters is going to be on and they need the train. They're not going out there to get their photo taken. In our day, we went out to get our photo taken because we might get on the cover of Surfer or Surfing Magazine. It's such an interesting thing to me, right? Because I would say that the current generation of surfers, and it's probably because the endorsement and prize money model has been inverted, right? right? They're pretty well paid. I feel like we have, and I'm generalizing here, but like a broad generation of surfers who don't want to be famous. They just want to get paid to go surfing. There's another do- interesting dynamic to that, though, is the social media element now, because I don't know if you get Australian surfing business, but they have a exposure meter now that's based on digital. Mm. And the most famous in the surfer in the world by so far as Gabriel Medina. I mean, it's ridiculous. And 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 uh, and it's interesting to actually look at that social media listing everything. I think Slater's at two. Uh, Stephanie Gilmore's right up there. She's like in the top five. Sure. And and uh, but but so that used to be the magazines. I mean, in my career, I had four covers of American magazines: two surfers and two surfings. I had two surfers in the same year, in the year '77, and th- and that was everything in those days. I mean, that created your fame. It's like that old saying about getting on the cover of a Rolling Stone, right? That that w- made you made your career. Well, in those days, that's what it was for surfing. You got on the cover of the major magazines uh, and and that's what made you fame and allowed you to make some sort of money from endorsements because that started to open up. But in the case of when I left to do Big Wednesday, I made more money from Big Wednesday than I made in the entire career as a professional surfer. And I still get in checks today, you know, some 40 plus years later. They're little ones, but I still get them. Uh, uh, They keep rolling in. (laughs) It just really fascinates me because I do think like a big component of surfers that have the longevity, certainly longevity you've had, is the ability to reinvent while they're on tour or afterwards. And and you had a really diverse career after as well, right? Can you? Well, then I had a business career, you know, like after after the 1979 season, which I was in the last final of the 70s with MR when MR wins his first world title. It was in, and I'm sure you've read what happened there. The last event of the year was the World Cup at Halle Ever, and a whole bunch of things had to happen for MR to be the world champ or otherwise Shane Aran would be world champ. And they all happened. Dane Kealoa got knocked out. Rabbit got knocked out. And then I had to beat Shane Aran for MR to actually have the chance to win the world title. And I did. I beat him in the semifinal. And then uh, MR actually had to beat me to be the world champ. And, uh, and I'll never forget as we're walking down the beach because MR and I have known each other since we're young teenagers. And he jabs me in the ribs. We're going out at eight foot Hallie And he says, you're going to let me win this thing? And I go, MR, if you want to be the world champ, you have to freaking beat me. <laughs> and it was a split decision. 4-1, you know, I, I mean, I, ga- I gave him a run for his money. And from there, uh, the next year, I so I had been declared the world champ, went and did Big Wednesday, went, dropped down to 14th. Then I came back and I was number five in the world, 78, number five in the world, 79. And in my mind, my daughter was born right at the beginning of 80. And I went, I'm just not going to be any more famous from surfing in the contests it's just not going to happen and uh and then you know family you couldn't take in those days you couldn't take your family with you there just wasn't enough money so i retired and uh and how, that, how old were you when you- i was like 27 and that's kind of funny now when you look at slater at 47 right <laughs> <laughs> and uh and i and i went straight away into coaching with the nssa William and i got the job as executive directors of nssa so were you living in america at the time already yeah so i married in seven 
29 and then kind of never went back to Australia. So I started taking up residence in the Huntington Beach area. And uh, and then we were executive directors of NSSA, Ian and I. Uh, Ian convinced OP and we launched the first rated contest of the modern professional era that was the 82 op pro which was legendary and because in those days each event director could make up their own rules <laughs> and so we had the priority rule and instant scoring no yeah. other event in the world had it right we had the buoy you had to paddle around to get priority and uh, i wrote the rule and i had to explain it to everybody and then we had uh instant scoring where meg bernardo would run from the second story from the judges tower down to the bottom to the sand and put the scores on a board so the commentators could see it <laughs> and and meg bernardo hired me 14 years ago yeah so i well her first and job remains her first job was working for ian and i at sports and media services as executive directors of the nssa there we go Me- she's the longest tenured asp ips well yeah asp ips WSL employee in history. She is. And, um, you know, Al Hunt retired this year. Right. And we had an all staff at um, here in California where everyone came in and we did this thing. We were going to honor Al. And there were a few generational folks that were around. Meg had been around longer than Al, but I said, well, we're going to honor Al. So I'd gone around and I talked to Meg and I said, hey, you know, I'm going to have everyone stand up in the room. And I said, if you've been here longer than five years, stand up. If you haven't, sit down and 10 and 15. And I said, Meg, when I get to like 35, can you just sit down? So, so, <laughs> And she goes, sure. Now, Meg is the best. Of Absolutely. course she did. There were a few people that did not, even though I'd talked to them. And so there, at the end, there were like a few folks that were like, I'm not standing down. And I'm like, all right, we're going to debate some history here. But yeah, go Al. So yeah, she is really the best. The So then yeah. what happened after that? Uh, so I coached uh, the uh, ISA uh, American national team in 82. And I took Curran to Australia and he won. And, uh, and that was his first venture outside Australia. And so he won the 82 ISA games. We came back. He started, I, I was still competing in, the California events and doing quite well. I came second to Curran in the Caton. So I was still competing in California, but not going on tour. Hold, and hold, real quick, you came second to Tom Curran. In the Caton in 82. And you were also coaching Tom Curran. Right. Interesting. <laughs> and then uh, and then in 84, Bob McNona approached me about coming to work for Surfing Magazine in mm. the ad sales department. And uh, that was the next 10 years. And I rose my way up all, way, all the way from ad director to associate publisher and then uh, left when Rusty came to me, a good friend of mine, uh, to be the marketing director. And so I spent nearly another decade, came back to publishing again, this time as the publisher of Surfing. McNona had been bumped further up the ladder. He brought me back again. And then I started the Active Empire uh, three years after, because now Surfing wasn't owned privately. It was owned by a New York media company called Prime Media. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like working for the man and being a line item in a spreadsheet and, and uh, where it was different. When Clyde Packer owned the magazine, I could go meet with the owner in Santa Barbara and talk about issues that didn't exist anymore. So I let and started the active empire and here we are 16 years later and i'm still doing stuff like the silver dragon and (laughs) it blows me away how often you know the changing corporatization of whatever either inside or outside of surfing often results a little bit in its demise right surfing magazine is no longer which is pretty funny because surfing bought surfer yeah (laughs) well and 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 
surfer has a new owner, right? right. So I, it is one of those things when you do have creative freedom and you do have a one-to-one pipeline to the owner and you are able to navigate issues. Now, obviously, the media landscape's gone under like, a crazy amount of change in recent times. But still, it, it seems like it's a consistent theme when a group gets bought out and you have a disconnect between ownership and um, the people running the business. It's it's a challenge. Yeah, and... and uh I don't know. I mean, I'm, 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 uh, as you know, I'm a maniac about Facebook. I stick to Facebook because a uh, guy Kawasaki once told me if you're only small and you can't, and you don't have a staff where you can do everything like Instagram and all this other stuff, just do one of them really well. And so I've just chosen because of the global impact of Facebook, uh, to just concentrate on Facebook, you know? Well, and, and you're a, a global icon. You were at 27. The, the thing I'm interested in is in the current coaching era, uh, from a Peter Townend standpoint, what was sort of the personal motivation for coaching? Was it business related? Like, this is my career. It's putting food on the table, as we talked about before. Or were you sitting there thinking like, I'm going to do something disruptive in surfing and kind of awaken the American sleeping giant here? Yeah, it was never so much about the the money side. We've never been paid much for coaching to begin with. <laughs> um, it's really trying to develop and nourish kids. Like, you know, like like having a vegetable garden. You, you, you see talent, right? And, and you go, wow, that kid has a chance to be somebody. And, uh, and I've done it at the, like, for instance, what, why I feel that is so in, in the 90s when my two boys, Jai and Tosh, were in middle school, their coach decided he didn't want to coach the surf team at Dwyer Middle School in Huntington anymore, which is the feeder school to Huntington High School, which is, you know, like the most successful high school program in America. San Clemente, I don't think's caught him yet. It's pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, uh, the, and, and Jai, the older of the brothers, came and said, Dad, our coach is quick. Can you come coach us? And I said, Well, yeah, sure. So I went and started coaching Dwyer Middle School. And we, the first three years, won the NSSA National Middle School Championship three years in a row. And I stayed there doing that pro bono no pay for it or anything just because it was great to work with kids mm. and uh and i did it for 10 years even long after the two boys had you know moved on to high school and that i just did it because it helped my skills at the higher level also because because i would see kids that had barely started surfing and i could watch their progress you know and and uh that's actually that's really helped me in this china episode because they're such in the infancy mm. uh, uh, of the expectations, what the government might think can happen and what can really happen based on I can see talent and they can't. Help me nourish the current best surfer uh, in China is a kid called, his English name is Alex Quizzo. Uh, and uh, he's 16 now. And uh, he came out, he's been on the team that China's competed with with the ISA Games for the last three years and came over for the ISA World Games uh, Juniors last year in Huntington. And after that, he stayed on and we went in, he wanted me to put him in an NSSA contest. And he actually made it to the semifinals in the NSSA open season, which gave him a real confident boost because he goes, wow, I, I, I can actually hang with these guys, at least in this one event. So I, I, I know there's some chance. So that years of doing that Dwyer Middle School really helped me understand down here at the bottom, at the evolutionary stage of, of someone's talent and how to get there. Because it's a whole different level when you get up to that top level and, and you're like Jake Patterson is today and you're coaching the best guys in the world. And it, that's a whole different thing. And I've done that and I know how to do that. But, but that's a different thing 
that 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 I think your all uh, all around coaching skills can benefit from being down there at the grassroots. Well, I was going to ask that because you've coached the range of talent, right, from world title contenders to to kids just starting. How would you describe your approach to coaching surfers? Um, I'm uh, I'm not I'm not so, I'm not so much a technique guy. I'm a motivational guy. I I, I can understand. I can see the talent. I can see the strengths and weaknesses and appeal to the strengths. And, and, and so, uh, cause everybody can learn to do the maneuvers pretty much these days. What you got to learn is to know when to, what I call pull the trigger and, and, and you hear this time and time again, wow, I, you know, like I did all that stuff in my video. <laughs> yeah. So what? It doesn't matter if you can't do it in 20 minutes. And then in the 20 minutes, you got to be able to pull the trigger. And that means if you get priority and you get the good wave, now you better score on that good wave. And that's pulling the trigger. That's the motivational part. And I, and I use it a lot in more recent times of coaching. When I came back at the high level for Surfing America uh, to help America get back on its feet in, in uh, 2004 in the ISA World Juniors in Tahiti and we won the silver medal, um, I came up with this new formula called two plus one and the two plus one. And I think this is really important at the lower level, not so much at the higher level because of priority becomes a bigger factor, but you only need two waves to advance. So when you've got those two waves, make sure the third one's better than one of the first two. And, and I can tell you time and time again with young kids, I've seen results as a result of that, that they, they don't take a wave that's not going to give you the scoring opportunity to be better than the first two, or you're going to hear it from me when you get to the beach. And, uh, and that, that's a really simplified way, but really important when you, you're coming up through a system. I mean, it's interesting that, and I think you're probably right, just based observationally on focusing on motivational and mental as opposed to technique. And, and even at the highest level, having done this for 14 years, it's like you, <laughs> you, you observe different approaches, right? Mate, how, how am I going to tell you how to do an aerial rotation when I've never done one in my life? I've only got air by accident. Well, if, <laughs> you and I are in the same camp. But but at the same thing, it's like even when you start looking at like Mick Fanning and, and Kelly Slater and Julian Wilson, and Gabriel Medina, it's like, what is a coach at this level? Now, some of them respond differently because you would see Mick would work with Phil and Phil's a technique guy, you know, and you see Kelly works with Belly in the past and Belly's more of like a sounding board, right. you know, and it's interesting, right? Because everyone responds differently to. Yeah. To and there's, and there's different coaching styles. I mean, one of the sports, I'm, I don't play tennis, but I watch it a lot and watching the best tennis players in the world and their coaches in the stands and the, and the, the motivational acts and, and, a, Seeing the weaknesses of the other guy, you can apply that stuff in surfing. Knowing who you're up against and 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 and, and making sure that he doesn't get a particular kind of wave. I mean, that, that came from a time when I was one of the few guys that could beat MR <laughs> because I wouldn't let MR get a wave that I knew he could beat me on because I knew the time as soon as he got a wave that was better than the ones I had, I was I, I've lost because he's gonna he, he could outmaneuver me. Yeah, offense defense. Right, and so you you'd go you'd go into defense mode to make sure you got the better wave. And and that and that and that's that's not technique. That's mental. What other sports do you watch? I know you're a big basketball fan. Big basketball. I love basketball. Uh, you know, I love NFL. I still watch all my Australian football. Now we get it live on television tonight. For instance, is a huge game. My Collingwood Magpies against uh, against the uh, Sydney Giants for you know who gets to the grand final, which is like the Super Bowl. But uh, you know, I like I love NFL. Uh, but from a point of view of it, it, its application to say surfing, tennis is a really good 
game to watch. Uh, I don't golf, but the mental part of golf, knowing which, which, which stick to pull out of the bag to make the shot. I think there's some of that in surfing from point of view of getting the wave when you've got priority and then knowing what to do on that wave, knowing what you know you can do 90% of the completion. Because you see young kids, <laughs> they get a wave and go for a rotation that they're not capable of making 10% of the time. That That's... That, that's just you're going to lose too many heats before you get any results you are one of 10 what we consider wsl founders 10 now well we're locked at 10 <laughs> locked at 10 there was only seven we're, last time I heard well we're we locked some... we've locked at 10 right <laughs> so we've got you peter townen sean thompson wayne bartholomew mark richards fred hemmings uh, excuse me, Randy Rarick, Ian Cairns, Margot Oberg, Lynn Boyer, Debbie Beecham. That's a good crew. I saw Debbie today. Debbie's here. Debbie got some waves today. Um, we're locked. I feel if I went to number 11 on either the male or female side, I would have 45 cases for wanting to be number 11. So we're not doing more than 10. But I do want to highlight that and also talk about, you know, world champion, businessman, Hollywood stuntman, you know, father, uh, you know, marketer, President of the of uh, of SEMA at one point. Literally everything. You know, if you look back at the storied career you've had, what what are you most proud of, and what would you like most people to remember you for? That I raised three kids to adulthood. <laughs> that a good citizen, gainfully employed, and not in jail. <laughs> That's a big one. All right, we're going to finish with the uh, the lightning round. If I can find my phone. Okay. All right. Lightning round questions with Peter Townen. One board set up for the rest of your life. Single fin, twin fin, thruster, quad, bonzer, or finless. Single fin, 10 feet long to glide. Coffee or tea? Coffee, always. Burrito or pizza? Burrito. Last book you read? Uh, Joe Namath's new book. Best surf film ever? Big Wednesday. One wave you never have to go back to? <laughs> uh, one wave I never have to go back to. Oh, my God. Which one is it? <laughs> uh, well, one wave I, I've been to, but I didn't surf as Chopu. I never want to go to Chopu. <laughs> That'll work. Um, only get to surf one wave for the rest of your life. If I'm young or I'm old? Right now. Right now? Uh, Superbank. What about if you're young? Kira. Kira now or Kira then? Kira then. Best person to share a lineup with? Best person to share the lineup with. Uh, are we in a contest or are we having nope. fun? <laughs> Hopefully you're having fun. Uh, best person to share the lineup with and have fun. There's too many. There are, there's so many people you can have fun surfing with. Anyone. Worst person to share the lineup with. Hopefully there's a smaller list. Oh. <laughs> uh. Is it in a contest? If it's in a contest, the worst guy in the con in, in a contest was Michael O. I couldn't beat that little bastard to save my life. <laughs> All right, last one. Finish this sentence. I will next achieve a state of happiness by getting to my feet and getting another good wave to the beach. Still think I can get a better one every day if I try. Peter Downing, thank you very much. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> All right, so that's it. So thank you very much for listening to the very first episode of The Lineup with the very first world champion ever, Peter P.T. Townend. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, we're going to be dropping an episode uh, every Friday. So check us out wherever you get your podcasts. And yeah, we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>